Welcome to our fifth segment of iArt New York on Radio Free Brooklyn, which is a free-form radio station. iArt New York is brought to you by your hosts, Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. My name is Isabella, and I'm a visual artist and an independent curator, and I work for the Polish Cultural Institute New York in the visual arts and design programming. And Rebecca Major is a visual artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College and is doing a curatorial internship program at the Jewish Museum. Today, for our fifth episode, we have in our studio a special guest, Mary Eve Lafontaine, whom I will introduce in just a moment. But first, I'd like to announce this show's mission. iArt New York is a talk show that explores current art exhibitions and art events in and around New York. We compare museum exhibitions and reviews, shows and art fairs to address questions all of us grapple with. How to look at and how to love the big, overwhelming amount of art in a big apple, how to pay attention to it and how to relate to it. We also bring you interviews with artists, performers, curators and critics. In our next week's segment, we will bring you the review on Freeze Art Fair New York that just closed a week ago. So without further ado, um, I'm honored to introduce today's guest, Mary Yves Lafontaine, an independent curator of modern and contemporary art, who was formerly a curator at the Schinkel Pavilion in Berlin and chief curator at Trafo Center for Contemporary Art in Szczecin, Poland. Lafontaine has curated solo exhibitions of artists such as Janet Cardiff, Alicia Quade, Gilad Ratman and Ari Benjamin Meyers, and was involved in Schinkel Pavilion's recent critically acclaimed Louis Bourgeois show, The Empty House, in 2018. In addition to her institutional experience, Lafontaine is a regular contributor to online journals and editor of several solo catalogs of contemporary artists. Um, so as a, a former associate curator at Schenkel Pavilion in, in Berlin, um, you've been working between Germany and Poland and mm -hmm. Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Um, you're beginning your journey in the U.S. Um, you, you've, you've had such extensive experience in your international uh, focus on, I'm very, on very lucky. contemporary <laughs> artists um, emerging as well as um, established. Um, I would love to hear about your experience in Trafo. So that, um, you know, organization that I know is featuring, it's like the youngest art organization mm -hmm. in Poland. Yeah. How did you get acquainted with them? And because Szczecin is the capital of the German-Polish border region, the West Pomerania. And mm -hmm. from what it seems like, it, the institution seeks to uh, consider multifaceted history of the city and its its own building. They are known for size-specific installations. So in that context, also the last exhibition was on Alicia Quade. Mm -hmm. That was the last one that I did, yeah. I would at, love at to Trafo. hear about that since she's been extensively exhibiting in New yeah. York City as well, she's so a, make that connection. She's a wonderful artist. She uh, has an installation on the roof of the Met right now, if you guys have, yes. have had the pleasure of seeing that. So she's uh, she's really doing big things in the art world. And um, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about Trafo first, like as an institution and my own experience with it, because I'm a foreigner in Poland. Uh, I was there for two years in Stettin, which is a pretty uh, little Polish city. Um, and a lot of people in Poland would kind of consider it the backwater of Poland in terms of culture. And uh, I was really, really, really blessed to come to Trafo at a time where um, there was really very much like a spirit of change going on in the city. The city had received a lot of funds from the European Union in order to re revitalize the cultural scene there. So they renovated an opera house, they built a couple new museums, and Trafo was part of that uh, mission to make it into a sort of cultural capital for the Baltic region. And while I was working there, we felt that we were actually pretty successful in that because... We were able to work with a lot of international artists on a very, very high level, like Alicia Kvara, who was already a superstar when we did this exhibition with her uh, there. 
And um, we succeeded in attracting a lot of people to come to Stettin from abroad. So we had very strong links to Berlin. We had strong links to France. We did uh, an exhibition from an artist called Nicola Samori, who later that same year represented Italy at the Venice um, Biennial, uh, where we also presented his solo catalog from the exhibition that we did. So um, I would say in general, uh, to work in Poland was actually an incredible experience. Uh, and especially to work in a city like Stettin and to see all of this change that was going on, which is very much the face of a new, modern, young Europe. The people that I met there were just incredible because they were so hungry for something new. They were full of these fresh ideas that they wanted to implement. Uh, they wanted to uh, bring the world to Stettin and they wanted to show Stettin to the world. And... Um, That was my first uh, real curatorial job where I, I had a team where we were working together to realize these big exhibitions. And um, I have to say that it was just uh, really, it was amazing. It, in general, it was really amazing. And I fell in love also with the Polish people. <laughs> so that's why I'm so involved in uh, Eastern European art, even still today, because I was just blown away by the quality that I experienced there. Mm -hmm. And I also saw um, how how much difficulty they have to get their work um, recognized abroad. And why Poland? Why Polish people? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm biased asking this question, but well, um, I, came, I, I really wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like kind of a strange uh, coincidence. I came to Berlin in 2009 because um, I had uh, done my undergrad in Canada. I wanted something different. So I came to Berlin basically by an accident. And um, through Berlin, I met people from Stettin, actually, in the city there. And I was working in galleries at that time, and I was working also in some nonprofit institutions. Um, and when Trafo opened, I was actually taken there by a group of Polish people to go to the official opening of mm. that place. Um, and Trafo Stacja used to be a f like a former transformer station um, from the very, very beginning of the 20th century. So it's this huge building. It's like four stories tall. There's a giant main hall. And I remember even still today, like walking in there the first time, opening an exhibition, thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What is this place? What are they doing? How did they do this? Because so I had never heard of the city before. The yeah, exactly. How far exactly. of a drive is it from berlin it's just two hours really? from berlin that's how close the that's polish incredible. border is yeah. to berlin and nobody in berlin knew mm -hmm. and even still today when i talk to people from berlin i say yes go to stettin go to trafo check it out they say really but you know i don't want to take such a country. long trip <laughs> yeah but it's right there it's like right at the doorstep That's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, do you know about Gallery Jacques Branicka in yes, Berlin? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. They were exhibiting With, um, Marlena Kuditska yes. last year at the yeah, Armory Show, which was amazing. Yeah, they're doing and, a wonderful job. And just coming back to a uh, sentiment, uh, I met Marie through the Polish Cultural Institute. Marie uh, wrote to me, um, finding my contact online on the, yeah. uh, <laughs> on the Institute's website. And... Um, approach with a proposal for collaboration within the street of Crocodiles exhibition, mm -hmm. which I know now is taking a little bit of, of a different shape. Yeah. Um, it's uh, becoming a foundation from uh, yes, exactly. what I heard from you. Yeah. And um, I remember when you came to the Institute and when we were talking about Bruno Schulz and the concept for the grotesque and the surreal and um, how you launched the concept in Bruno Schultz, Street of Crocodiles. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear about how this concept has transformed now. Yeah, well, um, so um, after I left Trafo, um, then I was working at uh, Schinkel Pavilion in, in Berlin. And um, then I came back to Canada. That was last year. And um, I was thinking... Uh, okay, I've, I know all these wonderful artists. Um, they're doing this amazing work. Uh, how can I help them? How can I give them a platform uh, in my role as curator here on this side of the ocean? Because to really advance in your artistic career, especially as a young artist, you have to exhibit internationally. And so um, I first came to um, Isabella at, at the Polish Institute uh, with this idea for um, 
a row of exhibitions that would be called Street of Crocodiles, uh, after a very famous story by a Polish author called Bruno Schulz, uh, who's very, very well known in Poland. And um, he was writing a sort of, uh, I guess you would call it magical realism. I'm not sure if that's exactly the correct term because I'm not an expert in literature um, before the Second World War. And, and he died, sadly, um, as a result of the Second World War at the hands of the Germans. But he left behind a beautiful um, corpus of work where um, when you read these stories, uh, not only do you feel very strongly this sort of spirit um, of creativity, the same one that I had experienced when I was living in Poland, um, but also the incredible uh, it, possibilities that a world like this is opening. And I wanted to try and find a way to tie visual art to something like this, to kind of put it together in that spirit, so to say. I know it's like a very broad theme, but I thought, okay, I'll talk to Isabella and see, see where it goes. And uh, that was a year ago, and now it's evolved into uh, a foundation which is actually based in Poland, um, but it's a collective of uh, several different collectors. And also we have a couple institutions on board, so we're in the process of putting that all together officially. And uh, we're looking to open a space, first temporarily, to see how it's going to go and kind of feel out the scene uh, for Eastern European artists in New York to come and have a residency and to then exhibit their work at the end of the residency. So that's mm -hmm. in the works wow. right now. It's not 100% official, but it's somehow we're getting there. Mm -hmm. And the name yeah. is the Street title. of Crocodiles. And that's yeah. going to be the name for the foundation. Yes. And it would be like a residency or a, mm -hmm. or a space to exhibit yeah. the works or yeah. both. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, the idea, we would work together in this case with um, Residency Unlimited. Uh, you've probably heard of them. They uh, manage a lot of residencies here in New York, and uh, they have a really wonderful program uh, where they help these artists from abroad to find a studio, to find a place to live, and then kind of uh, make the network for them possible. So bringing curators and uh, doing um, uh, talks with them and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So we're going to partner together with them in this mm -hmm. case and allow these artists to come to New York for like one or two months, depending on, on how the yeah. schedule is. Just, just like to kind a, of drop them into another scene and say, okay, look, look what happens here. Because it's one thing, of course, to exhibit the art. Um, but if you really want to make a difference in an artist's life, I think that you have to open the world to the artist. And, and, and the artists are from that region or specifically from Poland? They're from the Eastern European yeah. region. Well, I would say like Central and, and Central. Eastern Europe, because mm -hmm. obviously it's quite a fraught um, mm -hmm. political term. And I know a lot of Polish people who would say we're not Eastern Europe, actually. Yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't consider themselves exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the question is then, in that case, who is Eastern Europe? <laughs> so, so you have to make the topic very broad. But, but it would be like um, Poland, yeah. Hungary, for example. This, uh, this whole region. And the Balkan states. Yes. Like it, yes. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so that's it's really, interesting. It's a lot too. of work. Yeah, because in New York, right. there's there's the um, ISCP, that's the only one that right now comes to mind where, yeah. but I think that, yeah, there really seems to be a need for this type of programming because also, although there are a number of artist residencies that do studio space kind of programming, I think you have to be a United States citizen to apply to them. So mm -hmm. it really right. and disadvantages a lot of other communities from accessing Yeah, that. it makes it difficult. It's it's to, and it's getting harder to be honest. Oh, because <laughs> this of whole all situation of the visa, at the moment. Yes, because yeah. Of, uh -huh. I have um, I have a very good friend from uh, Hungary. I met with her this morning actually, and uh, her visa wasn't renewed. She has to leave and go back to Hungary. How long now. has she been here? Um, a few years. Oh, really? Uh, and she is actively working here. Oh my God! She has a lot to do, but she has to go. Right. Wow. So, in the original statement for the series of solo exhibitions. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you wrote that without the support of a gallery, which is likely to travel to New York and in face of relatively little amount of travel by foreign arts professionals to Poland, which is so important, this exchange, mm -hmm, exchange absolutely. of curatorial, uh, you know, uh, the art manager roles, um, exchange of knowledge and exchange of you know, expertise between 
to Poland and the United States. It's so important to have that Absolutely. ongoing and, Absolutely. Um, and to foster that. Um, and you say um, other methods of visibility must be considered. And I, um, I really underlined that statement uh, because <laughs> I mean, it's really a privilege and it's, uh, it's a luxurious thing to even to apply for residencies because they are so expensive. And then residency yeah. fees um, in New York, you know, like uh, residency unlimited. I think the f uh, the fees, uh, the expenses are like over a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, from it's, what it's, I it's around two thousand dollars a month. Yeah, actually. but actually, <laughs> it's pricey. From my experience working at the Polish Culture Institute, because the institute uh, supports participation of mm -hmm. Polish artists at residency unlimited. The costs of participation and living costs, studio costs, go to six, five, six, seven thousand dollars sometimes yeah. for a span of four months. Yeah, New York is expensive. You need, yes, you need to cover everything. Um, and uh, so Pioneer Works, 18th Street Art Center, CC Arts Link, Bax, Brooklyn Arts Exchange, which is Bax, and then NARS Foundation, Silent Barn. The Brick is like one of the largest in New York City as far as the studio program and residency program. Um, what do you offer that would be different from the vision that these other institutions have that would allow? You mean for, for the artists in particular? Right. To, so that would allow accessibility and more opportunity and more hope for artists to actually... Mm -hmm apply and be accepted and not, you know, go bankrupt when they actually yeah. well, get accepted. Well, first of all, what we're aiming for is that actually um, the foundation is going to be covering these costs. So this is already a huge help all of for them. artists. Yeah. Well, th that's what I'm working on right that's now. Amazing. Yeah. Because so um, living studio. Exactly. Yeah. Programming because, um, like studio visits mm -hmm. from notable yeah. people from the yeah. art world. And, um, and of course, uh, I, I also plan to be here when we get everything going. And ideally, I would also open up my network to them and work very closely with these artists to do these things, uh, not just in terms of introducing them to people or um, maybe a particular curator or something like that, but uh, I also have quite a few contacts when it comes to magazines or, um, like, for example... Um, when I was at Shinko, we did a cooperation with Freeze magazine. And so I, th I think I really strongly believe the art world is so much about networking. And I really hate to say that because I think a lot of artists come out of art school thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. All I have to do is make my art and then find a place to exhibit it. And no, it just doesn't work that way. You really have to put in the time to get to know people who are going to introduce you to other people who are going to introduce you to other people and then hopefully something will come from that uh, and obviously nothing is guaranteed so absolutely part of, part they don't teach that at school no and they should actually mm, there's they no should. course on marketing or no, promotion no. artists are usually very sensitive yeah um, they artists like to just focus on their work not all of them are good in promoting themselves yeah and, and those and skills are undervalued i think yeah because you, you need a lot of social skills actually somehow to to mm. manage that sort of and yeah. usually of business course, school should yeah. be like a yeah. half of the course i know work. it's crazy <laughs> Yeah, because if you're an artist and you, you come out of an art school, then you have to do everything yourself. You have mm -hmm. to do the marketing, you have to do the publicity, you have to make the work. That's mm -hmm. a huge amount of time. You have to do the research that goes into the work. You have to put together a production team if you're doing multimedia and then selling everything mm -hmm. on top. And then <laughs> it's like support an, yourself and exactly. have, you have a have job. Exactly. You have to pay the rent. Imagine you have a family. Imagine you have a studio yeah. assistant to pay. Well, I can see that um, the value in coming to the United States for even a brief period of time where you have so mm -hmm. much access to those types of things that Absolutely. you're describing in terms of exposure and making connections that could be the equivalent of 10 years of, of, um, networking and, you know, yeah. email exchanges and, and that type of trial and error of pushing one's work forward. So it doesn't matter even if it's like four months or two, you know, it's, it's, it's the quality of the time yeah. that's spent in these types of yeah, frankly speaking, it's just about being here because uh, it's not just about being here. No, but I mean, it's like oh, right. it's like being here, but but being yes. 
exactly. in the scene exactly. and experiencing and also taking inspiration from that too. Um, because like, for example, uh, let's just go back to Poland because, um, it's the country we were talking about before, uh, average wage, full-time wage for one month in Poland is correct me if I'm wrong, Isabella, but from what I remember, it was around 400, 500 euros. If you would like, uh, calculate it, which is about $600. Uh, I think it's around 700, $700. So that's the average. yeah. Yeah. So how are you going? First of all, there's no collectors in Poland. There's some, but there's very, very, very few. Um, So you're just going to have to go from the assumption that you're not going to really be able to sell your work in Poland. So how are you going to sell your work outside of Poland? Well, you have to leave. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have to find a gallery that's outside of Poland. How are you going to leave Mm -hmm. if if you're making probably below the normal living wage as an artist? Because artists don't make so much money usually, especially when you're very early on in your career. So that's why bringing together these collectors, forming the foundation, and making this bridge possible for artists to be in New York, which is really the center of the art world, whether we like it or not. Oh, is it? It's not in Europe? No, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) When it comes to being an artist and selling your work and also getting your work seen, um, and I'm coming from a Berlin perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely New York. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe you have a different opinion, but (laughs) it's just my outside opinion. No, I think you would have a better like scope of the situation since you've worked in Europe as a curator. But maybe also, I mean, Berlin is also pretty different. I mean, you have, of course, London. London Mm -hmm. has also a very strong collector's scene. Yeah. You know, I was reviewing the Freeze Art Fair through their website and they have online, they have a, um, a gallery list of like, not their picks, but top six. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's global. It's an international list of the galleries. Oh, not just. And, uh, Poland, Hungary, Russia, the Balkan states, um, most of South America, Africa are completely left off the list, like yeah. entire countries. They're not li- like there are no galleries that are listed as, mm-hmm. or institutions or, or, or museums yeah. in the entire list. So I was pretty surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, in terms of commercial art, it's, it's simply what sells like business is business. And of course it's much more difficult to sell art from a relatively unknown gallery, um, uh, from a small country, um, because collectors in the end, I would say most of the collectors that, that I've worked with in the past, they, okay, they're interested in young art, but they also want to secure investment yeah. because if you're going to drop more than 20, 30, 40, $50,000 on a work of art, you want to know that it's actually, you know, if you pass it on to your kids or mm-hmm. if you want to sell it again at some point, mm-hmm. that you feel like you have the value that that is inherent in that work of art. And and young art is very difficult in this way because the value fluctuates so much uh, in a young artist's career. And sometimes this turns out very bad where um, a collector will snap up a, a work, artificially push the price. Um, you see this a lot at auction houses. Mm-hmm. And then they start a sort of bidding frenzy. Um, And then at some point, the artist who's only maybe 30 or 35 years old, the work becomes too expensive, actually. And then nobody buys it mm-hmm. <laughs> ever again. Or, so the prices really, really drop. And then the artist has to start to start again from zero. And uh, this is a really dangerous thing for, for a career. That's so interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard of that scenario. So thank mm-hmm. you for explaining that. I have heard of the scenario where... An, a young artist's work is held in different collections and then it gets to a certain price and then everyone sells and then it yeah. kind of bottoms out that way. Yeah. Because people treat them like stocks sometimes, Yes, which is, I, I think, a shame. Yeah. I mean, you have so much experience working with the, the collections um, because you do yourself, uh, uh, you are in that role. Um, yeah, I, I do art advising on the side mm. because museums don't pay <laughs> so much money, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Do you, I, is that, um, this is a silly word, but is it fun? Like, do you, because you get to see, like you're on your feet, you're seeing a lot of different um, shows and mm-hmm. is it something that's, that activates you? Yeah, like, actually, I, I really enjoy enjoyable? it. Um, I really love to work with people on a one-on-one basis and, um, I, I, I really love to work together with clients who, uh, 
really love to support art. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I have someone come to me and say, listen, I have um, $500,000. I want to invest it. I've got this cash. So tell me what I should buy. Do you advise them to invest in emerging well, artists? That's that's what I do. It's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> But it's very difficult to convince someone who has no experience with the art scene that they should help support young artists because it's the right thing to do, because it's a good thing to do, because uh, the work is intellectually satisfying and stimulating and will be the basis of a great collection. Usually they go straight to blue chip artists. and um, What does it mean? So they would go, for example, to um, any one of the big galleries. Robert Motherwell. Yeah, or, exactly. Know, modernist paintings. Exactly. Or... I, you can just go to Gagosian. You don't yeah. need me for that. Just walk in. You put your money on the counter and say, give me something mm -hmm. that's not so complicated. Um, so when I do art advising, then I try and work in a very close collaboration with somebody who usually knows what they want like the general area i'm really interested in multimedia art i'm really interested in post-internet art i'm really interested in vr art so something that's a little bit more challenging and then i have a lot of fun bringing them to places introducing them to new galleries introducing them to new artists and starting a conversation between them and the creative side yeah. so that's that's really what i do in that case yeah That sounds like it's very uh, rewarding and also challenging because it's you're navigating the commercial and the personal spheres, yeah. pe people's budgets and mm -hmm. um, their belief as well. And there's amount of trust, I'm sure, as well, that they trust yeah, you, absolutely. your choices. Yeah. Would you talk about that a little bit, the, the trust? Um, I've had a, I've had a few instances uh, because you, you you try and um, get like to know uh, the thoughts and feelings of of um, the collector so that you can choose the art for them essentially or show them different things. Um, you, you usually develop a very close relationship over a long period of time. So I've been really really um, blessed to have like I would call them friends actually. Um, Who, are, who also happen to be clients of mine that I've been working together with since I came first to Berlin, actually, so, so almost 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, there have been cases where I said, hey, uh, you should go check out this artist. They went, they bought a piece, and then actually the artist quit making art mm -hmm. <laughs> and said, I want to become a chef or something like that. <laughs> and then they came back to me and said, uh, so <laughs> what was with that? I say, listen, you know, you, you supported this artist at a very important point in their lives. It doesn't matter if they decide to do something else with their career. Think of it this way. They made a limited amount of art. <laughs> and what they made was very, very good. So I would definitely hang on to it because it might appreciate in value. You never know. And even if it doesn't, you bought something that you really liked at the time that you bought it. And it looks fantastic over your sofa. <laughs> and not only that, but the artist is still alive. And exactly. artists' lives are amazing mm -hmm. in, the, in the sense that it's... it's It's a whole process. There's yeah. no, there's nothing to say that they, that person, that artist won't return and that, you know, they go through various phases. They go through various styles. Yeah. It's not done. Plus, plus artists are notoriously flighty. So <laughs> no, they can quit art for years and always come back. You never know. So at, when you were at Truffo and, and the Schinkel Pavilion, mm -hmm. you did a number of, um, exhibitions and I just kind of want to, I, I jotted down a few. Okay. <laughs> Religo. Religo, yeah. That was the first and big one I did. That was the first big one. And the artist's name is Nicola Samori, mm -hmm. Italian. Yeah. And the work was partly in an adjacent cathedral. Yeah, it was... Um It was actually the oldest church. Well, it's a, it's a, it used to be the cathedral, then it got downgraded mm -hmm. according to Catholic rules. But it's the oldest uh, church in Stettin. And Trafo was in a street called Schwintego Ducha, which means Street of the Holy Ghost. Oh, wow. <laughs> Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit. You can also say Holy Ghost in <laughs> yes. English. Yeah. Yes. Actually, yeah. Holy Ghost sounds a little more creepy. And, I like it. I like and then it immediately the across the street. Yeah, that's true. It's darker. Of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Then immediately across the street from Trafo was this beautiful, huge church built in this um, Baltic Gothic style with, with made out of bricks. Um, and I think it, the original church is from 
uh, 1,100 or something <gasps> wow, like that. Wow, it's really that old. Yeah, when yeah, I, I so, saw the video and the interior, yeah. the bricks were bare, so I mm-hmm. thought maybe it had been peeled off. Yeah, everything was everything was, was renovated. Was that renovated. structure that stands there isn't the original one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they rebuilt that one later on because churches have a habit of burning down oh. multiple times uh, in medieval times. Well, the work looked amazing, partly mm-hmm. because the artist paints in this very um, traditional Italian master style. Yeah. I'm not describing it. Yeah. Well, you'd do a better job. He, but he paints like an old master, yeah. actually. Yeah. And the and you can really tell even in the video the technique and the layers and the glazes and the fine detail um, of his figurative works. He kind of it's Caravaggesque, and I almost wondered, does he take a poster and just? And just like, put it on And just there. put it on the canvas because <laughs> it looked impossible. Like, yeah. wow, he really rediscovered a lost art of painting figures in this old master's technique. And then what he does is he, in some capacity, he peels the layers back off. Mm-hmm. And what was so beautiful to me was that he's kind of having a conversation about the materiality of the canvas itself. It kind of becomes a form of flesh you know, like he's painting figure and so he's painting, you know, the flesh, but then he's kind of making the canvas itself peeling and, and somehow this material, um, visceral quality yeah, to it. His yeah, work was very strong and, and it is absolutely. Um, Nicola's a really interesting artist because first of all, um, he's also quite young. Uh, he's still in his thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was 34. Four thirty-five when we did the show with him and he grew up in a tiny little village in italy and he actually taught himself how to paint uh in this old master style by going to the churches as a kid and simply copying and copying and copying and copying and um but, but what i really love about him is not just the fact that he can do this amazing technique and he also uses um other renaissance techniques like painting on copper for example which allows the um the light mm-hmm. to go through the oil paint and be reflected back so it looks like it's kind of like illuminated from behind which is really really interesting um but then he kind of brings it like kicking and screaming into the modern era because he's painting like layer and layer and layer and layer on these canvases or on the copper he waits for it to for it to dry and then he actually takes a scalpel and he treats the paint as if it would be um, a separate work in itself and he kind of like cuts and peels and in doing this way he like reveals another narrative that's in the picture that you wouldn't see otherwise Mm. so like for example, uh, this work that was in the church, uh, it was Mary Magdalene. The template that he painted it from was actually a sculpture, which is now in the Louvre. And he kind of translated this into this giant, I think it was three and a half meters tall mm. uh, canvas. And then with a comb, after the oil paint was nearly dry, he combed down from the top to the bottom of this giant Mary Magdalene figure as if he was combing her hair because oh. Mary Magdalene in right. the Bible it's known for her. Yeah. Well, it's actually, um, it's, it's not a story in the Bible, but, um, I think it was the Apophrica that came afterward. She, uh, she was naked in the desert and, uh, she prayed to God that she would be covered uh-huh. <laughs> and God made her hair grow. <laughs> oh. So that's why when you see these, um, pictures in art history of Mary Magdalene, yeah. she always has this very, very long hair, which is covering her uh, voluptuous nakedness because mm-hmm. she has to be voluptuous. Um, cause she's a sinner mm-hmm. and, uh, and she's usually in some sort of anguished pose, like mm-hmm. looking up towards the heavens. So that was how Nicola interpreted this in his own method by, by literally combing mm-hmm. the hair down so that the paint was falling in ribbons from the figure. And when wow. you, so it's actually kind of like a sculpture mm-hmm. because th- this materiality is there. It's not a flat surface at all. You can oh, really see right. like hair covering or, or a performative painting. yeah exactly uh, he wouldn't say that himself because he's like very private when it comes to working mm-hmm. but it's definitely been interpreted a lot that way of course mm-hmm. you could compare him to a lot of artists who incorporated this sort of aspect of performative gestures mm-hmm. into their finished work like pollock for example it was all about the performance right mm. Right. Like, and Lucio mm-hmm. Fontana slashing exactly. canvases, yeah. first of all, yeah, iconic another cornerstone, yeah. another big, uh, big uh, mm-hmm. American, no, not American, 
uh, Italian. Italian. Yeah, let's come. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> um, you know, he's not the artist who um, abandoned painting and became a chef, is he? No, 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 no. He's still very. I would not think active. he was. So, one of the other shows that you curated that struck my attention was the at the. The Schinkel Pavilion, the artist Oliver Larik. Mm-hmm. Am yeah. I pronouncing his yeah. name right? Oliver Larik, yeah. And he's Austrian, I believe, right? He is Austrian. And what he did was he, I think he himself took three-dimensional um, measurements of uh, sculptures that are held in various collections in Europe and Paris, uh, sculpture houses and various museums. Mm-hmm. And he scanned them. I don't know what technique he used, but he scanned, made three-dimensional models. Yeah. And then he, with a 3D printer, printed out a sculpture of a bust of Beethoven, um, by originally by the sculptor Max Klinger mm-hmm. from the 19th century, yeah. among other various sculptures. And this was um, exhibited in the center of the pavilion. And the pavilion is a, a octagonal or circular room. And it has glass windows all around. And is it two floors or is it a basement? There is a basement downstairs, uh, which we also used as an exhibition space. It's still being used as an exhibition space. Um, but there's no windows. And then upstairs, it's this octagon. It's a and really interesting space absolutely. for art exhibitions. I yeah. can see that on the one hand, it would be challenging and then also rewarding in the sense that an exhibition can't be repeated anywhere else and except mm-hmm. in that space. And um, that particular exhibition uh, really seemed to fit beautifully there because the work mm-hmm. had this kind of glass-like quality and you can kind of see through it and see between them and had an airy quality and that echoed nicely with the space. Yeah, it was a really, um, it was a really great show. We kept everything as simple as possible when it came to the sculptures. Cause usually, um, uh, at Schinkel, uh, we work together with different architectural firms to make, um, an exhibition architecture. Um, usually young firms to like give them a chance to kind of incorporate their work into an exhibition. But with Oliver, we really wanted to basically strip it down to its bare essentials. And that was because the topic of the exhibition, the title of the exhibition actually was Panorama Freiheit. And um, that actually refers to a law in Austria where if you are a member of the Austrian nation, so the public, you have a right to um, the cultural property of that country. Mm. So you have a right to go into a museum and to view the cultural heritage there. And Oliver kind of took this as a jumping point because in his work, he always takes these scanners. He uses like a really big machine to scan these classical staff, uh, statues in different museums. Sometimes they're also plaster forms. And then he puts the 3D scan online on his own website, but he makes it freely available yes, to I download. Saw, yeah, it's exactly. uh, 3dscans.com. Mm-hmm. I, I went on the website yeah. and I was really surprised because he has several dozen he has um, a lot there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's really building it up. And actually, um, these scans are being used so much now. Like the last time I saw one was in a video from Nicki Minaj. I think it was Motorsport or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because you see a lot of these like classical busts popping up in pop culture nowadays. So anyone can go to the website. Anyone can download these mm-hmm. these um, these and, scans and, and manipulate them with any sort of within a program to add any texture, color, put them in any scenery. Uh, And then sometimes they send them back to Oliver and then Oliver posts the results. And um, to bring it back to this Panorama Freiheit thing, uh, the sculpture that he, that was the main sculpture in this exhibition, Beethoven by a very, very famous artist, Max Klinger, who's uh, at the time he was living, considered one of the greatest artists uh, of his generation. And this sculpture was the embodiment of artistic genius. That's how everyone was writing about it at that time. Uh, when Oliver went to make a scan of this sculpture, they didn't let him. Mm-hmm. And they said, you can't do that. <laughs> so would he have brought in his machinery yeah. to the site or would he yeah. have so had that's, to? That's what he usually does. Mm-hmm. And, and usually he doesn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the museum said, sorry, you can't scan it. Mm-hmm. And he said, 
okay, but I have a panorama Freiheit. Mm-hmm. I have a right Which panorama, to Freiheit means freedom. It means, so a panorama is panorama, mm-hmm. and Freiheit is freedom. So mm-hmm. you would, but you would translate it in this way. Like, um, it's a sort of freedom. It's a sort of, of right. Uh, a freedom for viewing or freedom. Yeah, exactly. To, mm-hmm. Exactly. But, um, this somehow didn't make the jump into the digital sphere. You only have a freedom to view it oh, if you're there. Live. And you can even take pictures. You can take as many pictures as you want, but oh. you can't scan it. Oh my gosh. So what's the difference? So he was like kind of playing with this idea. And what he did in the end, he sent someone in, I think it was uh, one of his friends or it was a professional, I don't remember, to make a picture from every single angle around this giant sculpture. Mm-hmm. So it was like a thousand pictures in total. Uh, going around the sculpture from every side. And then then (laughs) on his computer at home, he put them all together into an artificial 3D scan and then used that. So Uh, he got around it. Exactly. (laughs) And this is actually a topic that I'm working with uh, a lot recently um, because I'm writing a lot on on what you could call internet art or or new media art. Um, At what point is it art? At what point is it on the internet? At what point is it digital? At what point is it a sculpture? And how all these things blend into each other and how we as societies deal with these developments in creativity and in our boundaries of what we consider to be products of creativity. If it's produced by a computer, like in the case of the scan that Oliver put together at the end, is it still Oliver's artwork, Mm -hmm. actually? Because the computer did all the work. Mm -hmm. And a machine printed it out in the end to put it in the Schinkel Pavilion, where it was exhibited as a sculpture sculpture. by him. But all he did, actually, was have the idea. And And the computer did the rest of the work. Yeah, I see that. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. It really complicates yeah. the idea of what is 2D, what is 3D. Because mm-hmm. when I was looking at the sculptures on his website, um, I'm looking at a 2D image of a three-dimensional object. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. my but, mind... But you can that, also hook it up to any um, 3D printer and print out like a miniature of one of the sculptures. Oh, wow. It's really funny. Really you amazing. just plug it in. So wow, with yeah. your interests, you really have it deep-rooted interest in art history, mm-hmm. going back to classical, clearly, you know, these two artists are very much rooted in art history, but then you're also very interested in the new, all, media. All, new media yeah. and video. Yeah. And well, for me, it's like an uninterrupted, I, I really feel like for somebody to have a good knowledge of contemporary art today, you, it's absolutely essential to have a knowledge of art history. And not just of art history, but also social history, of economic history, of political history. Because art is just the visual product of a society. Art is like the language uh, that a society expresses itself in. And in order to understand an artwork, you have to understand the, the forces that put it into motion. And when I look at a work from Oliver uh, Larique, this Beethoven sculpture. I'm thinking of um, not just the technology that went into making it, but I'm also thinking about the concepts of romanticism of the original sculpture and all those ideas, this concept of artistic genius, um, music, uh, Beethoven, the the country that, that produced it at that time, what sort of forces were going on there in the political sphere. Why was the sculpture considered the greatest of its generation? Mm. Um, why is Beethoven considered one of the greatest composers of his generation? And how does this romantic spirit um, intersect with um, the German-speaking countries that we encounter today, which are in some ways very proud of their heritage mm-hmm. and in other ways actually very ashamed of it because you mm-hmm. have this very strong nationalistic movement which is now reappearing again in Germany. So there's all mm-hmm. these different forces mm-hmm. that come together in one exhibition. And mm-hmm. when I work as a curator, I try and have a very broad overview instead of kind of narrowing it down because... I don't know. That's just the way that yeah, I learned. Right. And then um, I would like to come back to Alicia Kvade. Mm-hmm. And her work is on a different different form, different concept. Yeah, it's on a completely different level. And it's about time. And it, she vents some of the minimalism and some of she kind of pitches in a little bit of the surreal into the minimalism. Yeah. So let me know what's your feel yeah. on that. She's been uh, quite... She's been mapping out New York City lately, which shows at the 303 Gallery, which represents yeah. her. There's two upcoming shows, actually, by uh, 
aspects of her solo shows at MIT in Boston. Mm-hmm. That's in September or October. And, um, and then Dallas Contemporary, another big solo show. She was at the Freeze Art Fair, of course, and uh, her work sold for like fifty, seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, I know from the and gallery. I'm, I'm sure it would sell for more if they wouldn't keep the Direct price there. artificially low. Oh. Actually, because um, they they try and keep a very strong control on those sorts of things. She's mm-hmm. on the roof of the Metropolitan Museum. She's mm-hmm. at the Socrates Sculpture Park. We we saw the opening actually with Rebecca. Oh, really? That's great. yeah. We went for the opening because oh, uh, the vice. President Erica Weiss from 303 invited us. Oh, in person. wow. So, uh, Very met, nice. Um, uh, she was uh, invited into the uh, 2017 57th Venice Biennial. And I wonder if you were involved with that? No, I wasn't. But no, you were involved none of the people with, working uh, there. You were w- involved with the Venice or uh, are, are you? Uh, involved with, with when Alicia was exhibiting at the Venice Biennale? Yes. No, um, we were very, we were working very closely together with her gallery at that time, Koenig Gallery, but I didn't have anything to do with the Venice Biennale. No, you had mentioned earlier that you worked on a catalog. Oh, that, that was for Nicola Samori. And that went to the exactly. Venice yeah, Because Biennale. Nicola was representing yeah. Venice then. And yeah. that was 2017? No, or? that was 2015. 15. Yeah, that was two th- and, and Alicia was exhibiting in 2017 mm-hmm. with these big giant um, uh, sculptures, uh, the big balls made out of like granite and the different stones that was just outside the arsenal from what I remember. So I would like to um, uh, hear your take on uh, the Snack Austin exhibit at the Schinkel. Um, how much uh, did you curate this show? Sorry, Did which you show? The which Snack Octon at the Schinkel Pavilion. Snag Octon? Um, uh, yeah, that was her last exhibit at the Schinkel. That was 2018. A list from Alicia? Uh, yeah. Or was it, I'm sorry, uh, was it Trafo? Oh, Trafo. Trafo, yes. Yes, yes exactly. That was a That Trafo. was, um, yeah, it was, oh, Nach Osten. Okay. Uh, it was Nach German. Osten. It was German. I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> Which means Nach Osten. It means to Towards the east. Towards the east. Exactly. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I looked it up. I don't know German, so. Nach I, Osten. Um, so uh, it came about in this way. Um, so Trafo has this giant uh, main hall. Uh, and Lysia made this work a few years ago where it's actually a pendulum, which um, is purported to show the rotation of the Earth, which was first exhibited in Paris in the 18th century. So a scientist there hung a giant weight from the roof of, of the, um, the Pantheon in Paris, uh, or the, the, the architectural equivalent to it, so this giant dome building. And then he set it in motion, so he pushed it, and it, it swung across the floor, but as it swung, it was always rotating. And this, in this way, he proved that the world is also rotating. So Alicia, who's working very often with uh, scientific concepts in her work, she's trying to basically visualize them, she decided to make a sort of pendulum in this way, but the pendulum is going to rotate the other direction. So in order to do this, she uh, had to find some people to help her invent a machine to make this pendulum, a giant pendulum, it's like 10 meters tall, uh, hanging from the roof of, of, of uh, Trafo. It was first exhibited in um, Kuhnig Gallery, which also has a very, very tall ceiling in Berlin. Uh, and you have this very complicated machinery, which puts a pendulum in motion. The pendulum, in this case, is a light bulb. Um, hanging from the end of this long uh, wire and then it starts to swing and then it rotates the opposite direction of the rotation of the earth and it rotates in the direction east and that's why the work is called Nach Austin because it means to the east and we kind of took this as like a jumping off point because Trafo is in Poland, Poland is to the east and uh, Alicia is based in Berlin. And even though she's a Polish artist, um, she identifies as Polish. Uh, this is also very problematic somehow in the larger sphere um, where sometimes she struggles with her identity. And we kind of wanted to emphasize this, uh, not just through um, this particular artwork, but by exhibiting also in very close quarters with this pendulum, all of her early video works. So this was a really great opportunity for us because you can see in all these early video works that she did, she doesn't make video works anymore, by the way. Um, You can see all of these ideas that come out later on in her sculptures, which are very well known now. Like for example, this 
clock, which was um, in the park, which always showed the correct time, even though it was running backwards. It was in Central Park, I think. It was a couple years ago, right? Yeah. 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 Let's check on that. One. I'm, I'm just trying to remember. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was it was here. So it was um, one of these giant street clocks. It ran backwards. Uh, the hands ran backwards, mm. but it still always showed the correct time. Mm-hmm. And this concept of time is something that Alicia has been working with since the very beginning. And in one of the videos that we showed in this exhibition, she painstakingly combed through thousands of old films to put together Uh, shots of different clocks and watches and um, digital uh, clocks to show the course of time over one day. Um, Or, for example, there was like another video where she animated um, uh, a whole bunch of different um, lights, uh, which somehow took on like a life of their own, uh, like bedside lamps or things like that. They would like move around the room in a very sort of spooky fashion. Uh, And light is also something that uh, is is figuring very, very um, importantly in her sculptures and work nowadays. So That installation with the clock at Central Park was in 2015, September. I just fact check. <laughs> yeah, Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, uh, so that was basically the exhibition that we did in Trafo. And uh, we focused in particular on these early works because she already was so famous for her later sculptures. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we have this amazing building, we have this amazing architectural space. How should we use it to do something new? So we were very pleased that she agreed to do the exhibition with us. Mm-hmm. So she was born in Poland originally and then lives yeah. in... Um, yeah, and so. both, both her parents are Polish. Her brother runs a pretty well-known gallery in Berlin called Quadrat Gallery. And um, both of them moved to Germany at a young age. I don't remember how old she was. I think maybe six or seven. Um, but she basically grew up in Germany, but she has a completely Polish background. Mm-hmm. And what is your background? Because you have a French name, but yes. you speak English. Yes. So it makes me curious. But um, you're connected are you with from, Germany? Yeah, I know. And now it's you speak Polish crazy. and German. No, I, I, don't, I don't speak Polish. And I should <laughs> emphasize that. You live in Canada. I'm, I'm sure you know. I live in Canada. I, yeah, it's, it's quite complicated. You're I was, such a Renaissance I born, woman. You, I, could, you could simplify if I'd you say want. I'm more a product of chance. <laughs> chance and curiosity. <laughs> I was born in the U.S. My mom is American. My dad is Canadian. Um, but my dad was an Olympic swim coach. So he was coaching different Olympic swim teams in different places and different countries. So we would move like every two or three years. So like I jumped around a lot between the U.S. and Canada. At some point I was living in Australia. Um, and then uh, uh, my family um, came back to Canada when I was a teenager And then having lived in so many different places, I was like, okay, uh, I've been here long enough, uh, time for something new. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I heard Berlin is a cool place to go. Let's go check it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that was that. So then I was in Berlin and then I was in Poland. And now I'm back in Canada because, um, because I'm finishing my degree. Yay. And that's in art history. That's in art history. Yes. Good for you. So So juggling a lot of different yeah. things and i have a daughter yeah. in addition to that right how is congratulations yeah. that's how wonderful. is combining all of how is balancing yeah that's the life role hard. as a mother really really hard a, it's really a curator hard. <laughs> and art um, advisor uh, basically when i look at myself i don't see what i do any different than anyone else in this gig economy mm-hmm. that we have as a reality in 2019 Uh, everyone else that I know is like a waitress slash writer slash karaoke mm-hmm. singer slash, you know, so. Um, uh, I call it multiplicity. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is not a bad thing. Which inform each other. Mm-hmm. So they are parallel rather than yeah. for me being an artist and a curator informs each other. It's like two ends of one continuum rather than like opposites. Mm-hmm. It's it's a frame for my identity. Yeah. For me, the biggest change was when I uh, became a mother, actually. This was like a whole new level of multitasking that I definitely did not expect. 
like when I was pregnant, I was like, I'm going to be like a cool mom. I'm just going to keep working, you know, with my kid on my, on my hip. And I really did that the first few months. Cause I was at Trafo at that time. I had her there. I was breastfeeding and I was typing emails at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now that I look back on it, I'm like, wow, like you were totally crazy, but I felt so pressured, mm-hmm. um, as a woman in the working world, especially in the art world in the very conscious knowledge that as soon as you have a kid, you lose like one or two years of your professional career. And in a lot of cases, you don't actually get it back. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was at the very, very start of my career then. Especially in Poland. Yeah, especially in Poland. And actually, interestingly, I, I did have some pushback uh, because of that. Mm. Um, I had some people coming to me saying, you know, you're a mom and you should take your mom responsibilities seriously and you shouldn't uh, be working. <laughs> When, But, when uh, was that? That was uh, 2014. My daughter was born in 2014. And that's also uh, when um, the government um, uh, switched also at the, the same time. And the law, law and Justice Party was voted into power. Mm-hmm. So that was a very strange time to be there. Mm. So you were um, inspired <laughs> <laughs> to forcibly... <laughs> to focus on uh, yeah. on your I, I felt role that I had as a mom. to yeah and we had a lot of um, women working in the office at that time actually our team was majority women and I felt a very strong pressure that I had to um, be an example actually in that in that situation mm-hmm. not just as a mother but also as a foreigner working um, in a country which had just elected a very mm-hmm. <laughs> conservative government into power um, In addition to that, uh, the other things that I do, like like my writing or my art advising um, or curating, all these things do feed off of each other. Um, but I feel that uh, it's not a- absolutely at all in a bad way. And I think that I've just learned to manage my time very mm-hmm. efficiently mm-hmm. <laughs> in the past few years. So tell me about your degree you're working on right now. Is it um, uh, what degree is it and what Art history are you looking at um it's an it's an art history and actually i'm doing it in medieval studies <laughs> wow, wow yeah it's a little bit um crazy but um i went to like very uh conservative catholic schools growing up so we did uh greek latin logic philosophy um in these high schools and uh when i um started medieval studies Uh, I did it because I already had this background. And um, going back to this like very broad understanding of history, I realized that so many of these things that we deal with now, these quote-unquote modern ideas, they actually go back to medieval times. This was the the beginnings of modern thinking. Um, and I actually love to study. I really love it. I love to do research. I love to really get into a topic um, to understand all the intricacies of it and uh, to do it in this time period i don't know i just find it really enjoyable i resonate with the importance of looking at medieval times in art history mm. and how that time period informs the contemporary art and the art sensibility um, i took a class at um, the graduate uh, cuny graduate center with cynthia han who is also chair department of uh, art history at hunter this is like flashback uh, <laughs> sentiment going back to hunter college Um, and it was an, uh, a course on um, uh, objectness and materiality in medieval objects. And Very I was, interesting. And I was working with wax at the time for my own installations, uh, reworking wax with, uh, with sculptural forms. I, I was creating my own narrative with, with that, my own me- methodology. And I took that course and I focused on wax for my research. And it was amazing to know that... Um, you know, use of wax as effigy and the masks, you know, the death masks. Yeah, absolutely. And how, what kind of role it played in, um, in the, in the uh, you know, the setting up cornerstones for, for um, uh, churches and um, the coins that were given away um, at the church that were disseminated, mm-hmm. that signified the strata of the social... Um, the the church hierarchy was all emblematic of the, the the wax objects, and then they were built into you know the foundations, and uh, and then they were uh, they would circle back to the church and 
they were uh, and but it's a it's a material that's used as a uh, for casting so it's sig- signifying the absence the void Mm-hmm. But it was uh, it had so much importance in that time. Yeah, there's there's um, so when it comes and all this materiality. Yeah, the yeah. gemstones actually. Besides exactly. wax, I mean, I, I focus on very humble material, but mm-hmm. uh, the gemstones um, uh, and the you know the marble and uh, it's uh, it's all very um, significant of like yeah, how every single little thing has its meaning yeah. and its social and the language. Yeah. And it's applied to like this uh, hierarchy of the church. That's that's really yeah. That's really yeah, exactly. Well, and even uh, when you look at contemporary art today, um, this materiality we view it in exactly the same way. Um, I mean, look at like uh, Rauschenberg, for example. Um, everyone points to his materials as being the main factor of his art, but it's not actually so different from like a, a relic from medieval times, um, where they they very consciously made decisions to fashion something precious out of materials that they chose and each little thing, every single gemstone, every metal, the way that they, they put it together, the thing that was inside it. So it's also like a combine because you have like, I don't know, a, a holy bone or a lock of hair or something like that. It's actually an early form of, of um, collage or combine. So you could draw a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I would like to ask you, I mean, among all of these roles that you perform, uh, you also launched your podcast called Untitled Podcast. Yes. <laughs> and um, I, um, uh, it's a work I in listened, progress. yes, um, uh, last December, that was like the beginning of mm-hmm. December, you interviewed Margaret Norton, who is actually yeah. going to be uh, together with Jamila James, the next curator of the new museum triennial in 2021 mm-hmm. and i actually i really hope um i'm working on it um uh, so that uh, she would go on a, a study trip research trip uh to poland this coming fall oh, that would be great in the perspective of the triennial uh, she's going to czech republic and she also has a baby yeah so she's looking at her time and mm-hmm. but she really wants to go to poland and we we just had a meeting uh a month ago about that with Massimiliano Joni, and I, I really hope she's going to go. Uh, tell me about uh, the choice for uh, the uh, for the podcast. Why now? Uh, what's wh- what are you looking at, and uh, how did you choose um, Margaret Norton? Is that your first guest that you had? Um, I mean, actually, my first guest was um, Szymek Pishtek, um, a Polish Canadian artist. So Margot was my second guest. Um, and the, all the other episodes are forthcoming because <laughs> I've been so busy the past eight months. I haven't had time to release anymore. Um, but the podcast is basically, I called it untitled because, um, because, uh, so many artworks are called untitled and I wanted to leave it open. And I, uh, one of the things I love most about my job is literally just talking to people, getting to know them, what makes them tick, how they think, uh, what they produce, just the way they see the world. And I'm really, really interested um, uh, in this regard, especially in terms of artists or people who are working in the art world. So um, I approached Margot uh, to do this interview because I really admired her work. And I also wanted to know what she had done in order to get to that position where she is now, because you you have so many of these star curators in the world that we all hear about and they fly around and da 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 da, da. but there's not really like a clear pathway to get into this sort of career you don't really know what you need to study or like how to study or like the steps you need to take so when i spoke with her um that was kind of the objective of the conversation. Whereas like when I um, interviewed um, Shemek, this artist, uh, his um, sculptures are very closely related to like his sense of identity as a Polish Canadian artist. And I really wanted to understand better the sort of motivations behind that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And like I said, yeah, there's more think, episodes coming. I think our motivations are similar. We've to, to understand yeah. the, the people that we discuss you know talk with and have them discuss their work and it's been so enlightening yeah. and you've been it's so fun. forthcoming <laughs> it's really fun thank you so and, much for having but me. yeah I'm, i i just wanted to um you know wish you luck on your upcoming project thank you i'm going to take a little break if i can and yeah. credit our host radio <laughs> free brooklyn it is um not-for-profit charitable organization 501c3 
is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you to help support our mission. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org/donate. Yeah, so I just wanted to remind our listeners of your project The Street of Crocodiles that is an upcoming and forthcoming project and it really seems to be something that's in the air because we had um a guest Katya Grahovsky uh a couple of months ago and one of the projects that she's working on a forthcoming project is the um immigrant artists biennial and it it's also looking to incorporate artists from Central and Eastern Europe, and um, especially women artists, I think, is her focus, and to engage them in the art community here in New York, because right. she herself is from. She was born in Ukraine, Ukraine, and then she grew up in Austria and Australia. Uh, and so now she's, she's an immigrant, wow. and so she really. Yeah, you you told me about her. I remember. Yeah, yeah we were talking about yes. her before. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be something yeah. really that's in the air. And I think it's, I'm glad. And, it's, and it seems to be maybe a kind of pushback to the administration's, you know. I feel like art is one of the strongest ways, actually, you can make a statement. And I'm, I'm really, really happy that these sort of things are in the air. As you it's say. so difficult to find funding and structure yeah. in a city that mm-hmm. where the real estate is going up every yeah, year. Exactly. Like sky high, crazy. And to find the support, to find people that you can trust, that uh, build the community on which you, you, you build your base for a, a, a big international endeavor like this. And thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Looking forward to see what comes out from Street of Crocodiles. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Looking forward. Really excited. Thank you so much for being here and for contributing this beautiful story about your practice. My pleasure. Yes, thank you. This was iArt New York, episode 6 on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much for tuning in.